Influencers, inspiration, and Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. This is Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Here's Connor Begley. Hi, everyone. Uh, Connor here. Welcome to Earned, the podcast where we try to interview the smartest people around when it comes to marketing and branding in the beauty, fashion, and lifestyle spaces. Um, Today, we have an amazing guest with us. Uh, So our guest is Jamie Starr. He's the global head of sports marketing at the North Face. Um, In addition to that, uh, Jamie has a, a... myriad of accomplishments. Um, so he was he got his undergrad at the University of Colorado in economics with distinction, then got his uh, law degree also from Colorado, uh, went on to become a consultant in digital marketing, one of the earliest bloggers, and then now you know has risen up the rankings on the brand marketing side. Um, so I'm really excited to have Jamie today and to ask all the questions that I'm curious about. Uh, Jamie also has the distinction of being our SVP of Revenues brother-in-law. So Brit's brother-in-law. So I have all of the dirt, all the good questions to ask him today. Um, <laughs> so Jamie, thanks so much for joining. Uh, it's great to be with you, Connor. Uh, stoked to have a, a chat here. Hopefully Brit didn't share too much info. <laughs> Only the good stuff. Only the good stuff. Awesome. Um, and if you don't like any of these questions, she helped me out with a few of them. So. Oh, I'm sure she did. And yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think you know before we get into it, obviously we're still shooting in our houses uh, over Zoom and, and iPhones. Um, how you know? How are you getting along? Where have you been the last few months, and how have you been adapting? Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks for that question. Uh, I feel yeah super privileged and lucky to uh, be where I am. I live in Park City, Utah. Um, Mm. So yeah, I live in a legit bubble. Um, (laughs) I spent my 30th birthday there. It's a great place. Oh yeah, it's it's incredible. Um, A lot of this audience might uh, know us first and foremost for for Sundance, but of course the Olympics were hosted here. This is also the hub for uh, the US ski team and um, really kind of a hub for uh, ski and snow sports culture, but um, my family and I, so my wife and my almost three-year-old daughter have lived here for a couple years now, um, and we love it. Uh, we both come from mountain towns originally, so yeah, live in Park City when COVID hit. Um, this was actually one of the top 10 um, counties in terms of transmission uh, per capita oh, wow. early on, uh, along with kind of a couple of our other homes, uh, being Sun Valley, Idaho, and uh, Crested Butte, Colorado, my hometown. So that's a reflection. You guys really do come from ski towns. Those are like ski central. Yeah, like ski, like iconic ski uh, spots for sure. Ski resorts, Sun Valley being the first uh, ski resort in uh, the U.S. And so, yeah, so we come from these, these ski towns, but the unfortunate part there is when COVID hit, um, so many international visitors come to ski towns that time of year. So um, there was just an alarming rate of, of COVID being spread throughout our communities. So it was a little scary at first, but what we realized yep. was, you know, we live in these bubbles and we can pretty easily isolate. And um, as everyone in, in urban centers was really struggling to leave their homes, we were actually able to leave our homes to get outside and um, I live across the street from a mountain where I can go um, a thousand vertical feet up a mountain and back to my car in 40 minutes. So I had an opportunity for daily exercise that really kept my fitness and 
kept my my mental game intact too. So I feel really lucky to be where I am right now, for sure. Yeah, I can't imagine being stuck in like our you know our head of sales is in a you know an apartment in New York yeah. in a high rise, yeah. and like what do you do? Yeah. Right, like you to go outside, you have to go down the elevator, which everybody's using. And it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, and you're in a small apartment, right? Like the purpose of New York apartments is basically just for sleeping and then, you know, eating. Like not yeah. even eating, just you know, going to sleep and then starting your day. Yeah, and you're on and the so go for your for your work day, your social life, you're you're always out of your apartment in the city, right? Yeah, so I don't know how they managed it. We were similar. I was with um, my family or my wife's family. So we had Two babies, two dogs, and nine adults in like the I call it the compound. Yeah, and we were like that for about two and a half months, and it was a lot, um, but it was also pretty awesome at the same time. And they live. We were in Tahoe yeah. or in Truckee, yeah. and so you know they live right on the their their house is kind of right on the edge there in North Star. Yeah, and so we could go out every day yeah. on walks, and and we had so many people to interact with. It was hard for me to um, empathize is the wrong word, but it's like. Man, that sounds really tough being stuck in an apartment in New York right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like a lot of my friends who live in the cities, um, they left. And I think that's yep. a mark of privilege too. Like if you can actually, if you have a, another place to go. Um, we have a few friends here in Park City who, you know, lived in apartments in San Francisco and then COVID happened and they, yeah, come from families that have second homes and they came here. So, I mean, this is a... Uh, a time when, yeah, I'm I'm especially examining my privilege and the privilege of of my community, and I think that's that's one of the many signs that, um, yeah, some of us are really lucky to be um, in the positions we're in. So, yeah, I mean, if you really start doing the math in terms of how much luck we've had, yeah. I think it's it's uh, pretty unbelievable. Yeah, totally. Um, so let's uh, let's start yeah. at the beginning with you. Sure. So you know, I actually didn't give you this in the pre-prep, but I'd okay. love for you to actually yeah. talk about Crested Butte. Yeah. Like what what was it like to grow up there? You know, I have to imagine that contributed to you know nature being like a really common thread across all of your all of your interests. Yeah. Um, and all of your career. Um, yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of as core as it gets um, as far as a mountain community. Uh, I was born in 1980 in Crest Butte. My parents were, were hippies who had visited there and fallen in love and decided to start a family there. And, uh, you know, it's one of those places where there's only 1,500 people in the town. Um, yep. And, you know, there's this real, like, legit sense of community. Everyone does know each other. If I were to go back today, I would run into almost everyone on the street. I would know. I would run into my second grade teacher, most likely, um, and so it was, it was a really interesting and formative time. Uh, I've sort of tongue in cheek said before I come from a small town, um, in the middle of somewhere, um, because, of <laughs> it was actually kind of an epicenter for, um, the, the growth and the, um, genesis of mountain sports that, um, are kind of somewhat mainstream now, but like the sport of skiing, um, really went through a massive transformation in Crested Butte um, as I was growing up. And um, same with mountain biking. Um, the Bay Area folks will, of course, fight us on this. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we like to think of Crested Butte as the birthplace of mountain biking, uh, just as Marin was the birthplace of mountain biking. Those guys were all part of the same dirtbag family, and they were doing the same stuff 
at, at the same time as far as innovating single speed bicycles, retrofitting them with gears and riding over mountain passes. So um, for another time, but there's actually on YouTube an interesting, uh, it's, I think it's split into two or three parts, but it's, it's about the Pearl, Pla- Pearl Pass Clunker Tour, which um, this thing was filmed two weeks before I was born in September of 1980. And it documents um, the exodus of Crested Butte uh, mountain bikers or clunker riders over Pearl yeah. Pass to Aspen. And the way that the, that tour first began, legend has it, is that um, the guys on dirt bikes from Aspen, because, you know, they had more money. Um, and that, of course, <laughs> has its own side story. Aspen, is, they mine silver in Aspen and they mine coal in Crested Butte. So do the math, commodity prices. Um, yeah, so yeah. The, the Aspen uh, dirt bikers rode over to Crested Butte and show up at the bars and started like, you know, hit, hitting on the, the ladies. And there was a little bit of a competition that developed. And uh, all of a sudden you have these guys on what we would yeah now call mountain bikes, but they were really heavy um, uh, clunker bikes riding from mm-hmm. Crested Butte over to Aspen. Um, and that became a tradition. And recently they celebrated the 40th anniversary of the Pearl Pass Clunker Tour. And uh, in that video series that I uh, mentioned that's on YouTube, a lot of the people in that um, are like my parents' best friends, people who, um, you know, kind of co-parented me growing up. And Brendan, my brother, Brendan, he, you know, too, would tell yeah. some version of this story. But um, yeah, we grew up in this really... Um, nuclear uh aka close-knit society where um you know it was all about community and free love and expressing yourself um in the outdoor setting and uh connection to nature and respect for nature and stewardship of the natural world were all part of that another part of that was that we developed a pretty interesting dynamic amongst our cohort um where there was a lot of like healthy competition and the sense of mm-hmm. like pushing each other. Um, it's kind of like having a lot of siblings that, you know, with your sibling, you're always trying to like outdo your sibling and compete. Yep. It, there was some sense of that coming up. I was a competitive ski racer. So, um, Alpine ski racer. So, uh, gate chaser. So I was a four event skier. I skied slalom, giant slalom, super giant slalom and downhill. So, you know, at 15, Which one's the most aggressive? I have to imagine Super Giant Slalom. Super Giant Slalom is still considered a tech event, right? So okay. in okay. terms of, it's it's really about radius of turns. Slalom has the most turns in a given distance. Giant mm-hmm. Slalom, second, then yep. Super Giant Slalom. And then downhill is where you see guys like Bodie Miller and uh, ladies like Lindsay Vaughn going 100 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, yeah, 15 years old, I think I was clocked at 85 miles an hour on skis um, during downhill training. That is terrifying. Totally. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. like, I'm a recreational skier. I grew up skiing. Um, never, obviously never uh, either professionally or, or competitively. But 85 on skis just sounds like... Like how old were you at the time? You know, like fifteen years old, and I only yeah, you gotta like, be the. It's like that fearless age where you just kind of go for it. <laughs> I was like a buck thirty, soaking wet. You know, <laughs> I weighed next to nothing, and that's a speed at which, like, 
you start to enter a different continuum. You, you don't even feel like you're <laughs> on the snow anymore. You just are skipping across the surface. So, uh, but so I looked up to a lot of the older ski racer kids and they would push us, um, young, young bucks. And, you know, it wasn't unheard of that they would stick your head in the toilet and give you a swirly and, and give you a little bit of hazing. And, um, there was I thought this, swirlies were just like a myth. I didn't know those were an actual thing. <laughs> if you want to know what's a myth and what's not, go to a ski academy. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I've actually heard that the is, like Olympic villages during the Winter Olympics get pretty wild too. Like it's a troubling culture in some ways. Um, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. Yeah. I forgot about those elements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, but I mean, the positive part of that was just like. I came up in this setting where I was sort of naturally predisposed to, to try my best. And, you know, I, I kind of developed into a bit of a chronic overachiever, but within a kind of an interesting setting, right? It's not like a normal soccer practice summer camp setting. It's, it's something a little bit more raw and connected to, yeah, a pretty extreme environment. Um, you know, Crested Butte itself was um, kind of the first real spot in North America to put extreme skiing on the map. And so um, hmm. in the late 80s, early 90s, that whole scene really blossomed and Crested Butte became really known as this like rugged, extreme place before people started overusing the moniker extreme. I also like, we I studied martial arts growing up. Um, I was the first and youngest person to ever receive a black belt in in Crested Butte at age 11. And so oh, wow. you start to add these. I think I got to yellow. Yellow belt in Taekwondo. <laughs> I think I did yeah. it for like three months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, like, so we had this like multiple sort of venues where um, we were we really uh, engaged in uh, working hard to achieve something. Junior Olympics for skiing. Um, practicing karate and then we did a ton of other sports too uh, it was it was kind of a, a dream place to grow up um, yeah it sounds like it especially for somebody that's active and outdoors yeah growing up in Crested Butte I mean now that we're we're retelling some of the story and um, talking about some of the things I got to do as a kid like pretty clear it's an awesome place mm -hmm. to grow up um, but we didn't know anything else right and so we didn't even have a prom in high school. I graduated with 22 kids and that was like one of the larger classes and maybe four or five, uh, a small percentage of our class were female. Oh, wow. um, and, and so we, like we didn't have things like homecoming or prom. Like I went to the ski academy where I think there were 50 or 60 kids total in the school. So. It was things like that um, that left a lot of us really excited to get yeah. the hell out of yeah. there when we were 17, 18, finishing high school. Um, and yeah, for me, like despite having a pretty clear path to becoming a, a pro skier, um, I chose the academic route and headed why, off to Why Boulder didn't you go after skiing? 1998. Uh, there was a little bit of burnout that I was going through. I think... Um, in hindsight, I probably burned out on karate mm. as well before I got my black belt at 11. A lot of my friends had sort of moved on, um, hadn't seen it through all the way to that achievement and had been playing other sports and they seemed to be having a great time. And then in the context of ski racing, you get to that age and if you're really going to take it to the next level, 
you find yourself um that's all, all you're doing all the time by, by training like all summer long you're lifting um you're going to summer camps you're doing everything in order to find one of those few spots on the u.s ski team so um honestly that was also the time when skiing was changing a lot and so we were much happier um building jumps and doing backflips than we were chasing gates on our training hill and so a lot of us um, started pursuing a different form of skiing and a lot of us actually uh, switched over to snowboarding i actually had a snowboard in high school and really enjoyed um joining some of my friends snowboarding a few days a week and we all skateboarded as well so like that sort of California um, skateboard surf culture um, kind of bled into our little landlocked community in an interesting way. Yeah, too. I mean, I feel like in some you know, in some communities, you going to snowboarding is like, uh, you know, you can be excommunicated <laughs> for doing that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny because like I, I saw that. I saw some, some factions um, forming skiers and snowboarders when I moved to the front range, when I moved to like... Yep. Boulder and you'd go to these front range resorts like Breckenridge or something and you'd see like legit fist fights in the in the <laughs> and we grew up in this culture where it was like ski or snowboard or telemark ski or we even had people without bindings on their snowboards um, way back in the day like whatever art form you wanted to use to express yourself on the mountain was cool in Crested Butte and it's still that way um, and we had very little infighting so I always kind of just called bullshit on um, the infighting between skiers and snowboarders because if you really think about it, it's just crazy to think that um, people like that would would fight each other or such have like a silly thing to. It's just such a privileged. It's a privileged. Yeah, place to be, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So, chill out, love each other, have have fun on the mountain. Yeah, right? absolutely. I just like I remember hearing about that kind of culture, and it's just like so weird. But you know. I don't know, surfers fight too, so. It, it kind of like, it's some of it's territory yeah. too, and, you know, not to like rag on surf culture at all because I understand how it feels to have a finite resource. Um, like yesterday, we got a freak snowstorm in the Wasatch here in Utah, and I skied powder yesterday morning, and I was all by myself, but on a normal winter day, there would be a yeah. lot of people running up the mountain or jumping off the lift and going as fast as they can to that one powder stash. And there is this sense of like, I need to get there before someone else. And, um, a little bit of competitive spirit there, but like, honestly, once you become an adult, there's no excuse for taking that too far. No, no, no. Um, let's all just well, I hope I'm not holding you back from the mountain today. If the snow's still around. I got my run in, um, right before I got <laughs> on with you. I was like, what can I do to prepare for this? And I was like, Oh, I'm going to go. I call it my perch. Uh, I was talking about it before, but like right across from my house is like a thousand feet of vertical, kind of near where the Canyon mm -hmm. Ski Resort is. And I can just get up and down really quick. And I went up there. I'll, if you want to put it in the show notes, I'll send you a, a little selfie I took. Yeah, send perch. it along. I was, I was thinking about it. Very, very about on brand. You got to go, uh, go hit the mountain to get ready for the podcast. Uh, <laughs> totally. So, okay, so let's start talking about, so kind of professional career. You, you went yeah. econ and then into law. Was yeah. it kind of econ leading to law or was there like a pivot somewhere in there? You know, and I know obviously you come from yeah. a family of attorneys. Your dad was an attorney. Your brother almost became an attorney. 
Um, yeah, tell me about yeah. that kind of transition and that that time period. Yeah, well, looking back, um, I think a lot of how my educational um, path unfolded and how my career unfolded was informed by yeah, looking up to my dad. Um, he was econ as well, mm. undergrad. Um, so he was student body president at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, really um, engaged in student government and during an interesting time during the Vietnam War. Um, and so he also is someone who went on to be a lawyer, but was one of those lawyers who like really uh, used his, his profession to do good. Like he and a couple other people founded the Crested Butte Land Trust in the late 80s. And that organization has since gone on to preserve thousands of acres of open space in the uh, Crested Butte area and the Gunnison Valley um, in perpetuity so people can continue to enjoy the place in an unspoiled, undeveloped um, way forever. And so, you know, my dad was definitely someone I had looked up to and always um, felt sort of best in life um, as a, a, in my childhood when my dad was proud mm. of me. Um, that was really important yeah, to me. And so, um, you know, kind of followed in his footsteps a little bit. I was still, you know, really in my early 20s in my undergrad uh, life trying to figure out mm-hmm. who I was. And, um, you know, I was, I was really kind of hell-bent on taking it a step further. You know, he had gone to the University of Colorado for law school as well, which is where I ended up going. But I wanted to go to an Ivy League. So I was looking at Harvard. I was looking at NYU, Columbia, Stanford, really top-tier law schools um, to the point where, you know, when junior year comes around and a lot of people head out to go study abroad, I actually stayed back in Boulder um, to study for my Mm. LSAT. And so this is something that I really took seriously. Um, And then I was thinking about this during my uh, run. uh, (laughs) And I was thinking about like, how everything unfolded and there were certain things that happened during that time in my life that sort of signaled where I am now or foretold where I ended up, which is, you know, I'm not a corporate lawyer in a big law firm in a city. Um, My career took a different direction. And one of the things that happened um, during my undergrad years was I I was studying for the LSAT uh, my junior year and my, one of my best friends who was my college roommate he, he ended up going to Australia for his study abroad program. And great for him, whatever. I had my focus. I was going to stay back and ace this test. I was crushing all the practice exams. I had a 4.0 GPA or something like that. Um, I was, I was well mm-hmm. positioned, right? And he had gotten someone to sublet his room in our apartment. And um, nice enough guy, you know, we got along. We didn't really like hang out very much, but... Um, you know, we were friendly. Uh, turns out the night before I went to sit for my, my LSAT, um, I did like a 12 hour study session at the library and I came home and I found a suicide note. Whoa. Yeah. And it, yeah, as you can imagine, like it derailed, (laughs) like I, I didn't know what to do. I ended up calling his family um, who they were based locally and really tried to help them locate the guy. 
Um, and they ended up finding him and he was, he was okay, but I never saw the guy again. They, they took him and I think they, they, they tried to get him the help he needed at the time, but I was thrown for a loop. I sat for my uh, LSAT the next day and of course just didn't have the focus I needed to really ace it. So I ended up getting a score that I think it was in like the 80th percentile. And I was used to on my practice test scoring in like the whatever, 95th percentile. And so when I got my score back, I was like, well, maybe this just means like law school is not in the cards for me. Ended up taking a year off after I graduated and moving out to Southern California and lived in San Diego. And interestingly enough, like that year, it could seem like a throwaway year. Like I ended up living in this beach house um, before the internet or Craigslist mm-hmm. uh, were around, I like saw a classified <laughs> ad and found this like roommate wanted. Though this was still happening. It was like, we didn't really even have, like there, there was no internet forum for this. And so, um, and I ended up living in this, this house with a, a great group of people. It was kind of a transient group of people throughout that year. But like, it wasn't a throwaway year when I think back to it. I worked for this, um, catering and event management company. And, um, some of that work was like crazy. I'd, I'd be, I'd do like double shifts, which means I'd work like 20 hours at a time or I'd wake up at like 4am to go serve a meal to some, some like group of, uh, plumbers. They're celebrating someone's like 30th, um, work anniversary or something weird. But what it also did was give me exposure to, um, like we did craft services and dressing rooms for the largest music venues in San Diego. So like, you know, I met mm-hmm. like Dave Grohl. Like I remember walking in oh, to Dave cool. Grohl's um, dressing room while he was getting a massage pre-show and just um, like having a chat with Dave Grohl. And uh, we worked a lot with Tony <laughs> Hawk. Like we would throw parties at Tony Hawk's house. And like, it kind of gave me this exposure to, um, yeah, athletes and other creators, you know, musicians and people who worked with brands and sort of this culture that uh, an aspect of the culture that I hadn't seen before, because I had seen kind of what what professional skiers or snowboarders look like. Um, but in terms of like exposure to big names and big Just brands, other athletes, other yeah. you know musicians, yeah, like the San Diego. I mean, Chargers. it's actually really. It's really can I actually think it's a really healthy thing to do to take those kinds of breaks. Yeah. Um, I mean, in Australia, they do it before they go to university, but they, it's a gap yeah. year, right? And it's just the expectation that from like eighteen to nineteen, you go and you screw around and you travel and you. It's almost always traveling and you go visit cool places and um, and then I, you know, after so I didn't do the study abroad thing mm-hmm. either, but after I graduated, I went and worked, you know worked really, really hard. So I was working, you know, six, seven days a week, 12 hours a day. And then, uh, at reputation then decided mm-hmm. to leave and went to Australia for seven months with, uh, my girlfriend, who's now my mm-hmm. wife. And, um, you know, that's what led us to starting tribe. Yeah. It was like that time to kind of take a breath, you know, assess where you're at. Um, it, it was just a really cool experience. And it, obviously not everybody, again, getting back to the idea of privilege, not everybody has that privilege. Yeah. But I think if you do have that, it's a pretty cool thing to yeah. do. Um, pretty, pretty cool experience. Yeah, no, it's it's great. And I, I love that about like Aussie culture, German culture. Um, when I was doing a lot more world travel um, before, you know, I had a, a young kid, you know, you just run into yeah. these like great people and um, 
during your travels and you start to, to, to draw some interesting inferences and conclusions about their cultures and like, you know, how travel is really favored. And, you know, it's not something that's uniformly the case here in the U S um, obviously like, I know this, the stat's going to be wrong, but it's like 30 or 40% of Americans will never leave their county. Yeah. Basically. Based on like literally their county. Yeah. Or like some <laughs> ungodly low percentage of people actually have passports. Right. And yeah. like, I just yeah. can't help but to think if more people from the U.S. had traveled and had been exposed to different cultures, like some of the issues that are really coming to a head right now um, might be going a little bit differently. Because I think um, exposing yourself to other people and other mindsets and other cultures um, just gives you great perspective um, and can help sort of shift your mindset on some preconceived notions. And I think what we're dealing with right now in society is a reflection of just a lot of entrenched preconceived notions and um, ways of thinking that need to be disrupted, honestly. So, Yeah, I think exposure is just so critical there, right? Like most people, I mean, once you meet somebody face-to-face, it's just hard to like, you know, hate them for the color of their skin, right? Like, it's just hard to do that once you actually know who the person is. And the problem is, again, it's just people live in isolation, right? They live in their bubble and they live in, you know, both the bubble from a social media perspective as well as from just a, you know, a friend circle perspective. And so having that lack of exposure just makes it, you know, uh, I think is a big part of the problem. Um, So how you change that culturally, I think, may not necessarily be the... uh, something we can solve this podcast but uh (laughs) it's worth bringing up though right yeah absolutely 100 percent, 100 percent. and also like when Um, you're young as i was like you know i think i took my year off at i graduated college at 21 and so when i ended up you know the mountains this is another theme like the mountains always draw me back in right and so mm -hmm. halfway through my year in san diego i kind of thought to myself like you know I have the opportunity to use my my score, my LSAT score and my grades to to apply to University of Colorado and it's a great school and I miss the mountains already. I'd only been gone for a couple months and so I that was the only school I applied to and I ended up getting into law school and um you know, didn't have a real keen focus or idea of what I wanted to do with that education, but um again, like my dad was a lawyer um you know, I was, I was drawn into that, that path. And, um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting one, but I ended up heading back to Boulder and, um, enrolling in law school that next fall. So, um, what's wild is to think about how that experience with your roommate potentially was a significant, like it just changed your path from here and went there. And it's like, you know, it starts, but you know, you end up in a very, very different place. Which is like, you know, obviously you're very happy to be in that place now. Yeah. Um, I feel like I had a, a similar experience when I was choosing school. Um, I was deciding between Cal Poly and another school, which is a great mm-hmm. school. And I was one button away from uh, going to that school. Like I'd filled in all the application. I was like, going to click, you know, this is the button. And then, uh, you know, obviously, I, and then I was like, I got to do a little bit more research. I started Googling and, and found some statistics on Cal Poly that made it really compelling. And my whole family's gone there, mom, dad, aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa. Mm-hmm. But um, 
which is part of the reason I didn't want to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you wanted um, but, have your own uh, path. Right? <laughs> I got to be yeah. different. But uh, anyways, you know, I ended up meeting my wife there. I met my business partner mm-hmm. there, right? Like that's been like the last 10 years of my life has been those two people mm-hmm. and or eight to 10 years of my life. And, you know, imagine if I just clicked that button. Like my whole life would be vastly, like it's There crazy. are movies about this, um, right? Like... As, you know, yeah, the butterflies yeah, wing totally. and, you know, that yeah, old. Yeah, but yeah. it happens. Like, life boils down to these pivotal moments, and sometimes you don't understand when they're unfolding just how formative and pivotal they will be for you. But um, very much the case, very much the case. And, yeah, I mean, I didn't even know, like, I, I started going through law school, and, um, yeah, I I did okay in law school, but, like, you know, I didn't know like some of my classmates said what I was going to do with my law degree, or I didn't really feel super passionate about the idea of being a lawyer and practicing law. So, um, you know, I did my best to get involved with programs that I did gravitate towards. So, um, I kind of got onto the natural resources law track, which again, Mm -hmm. sort of mirrored some of the work my, my dad had done. And, um, you know, I worked for, this uh, awesome sort of an externship with this awesome organization in Boulder called Western Resource Advocates. And they use law and policy and science um, to address issues facing the land, air and water in the American West. And that was really interesting work. Um, And it just so happens I'm now on the board of directors for that organization. I saw that, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So all these years later, but... um, yeah, I think for me, being a lawyer um, always felt a little bit like a cultural mismatch. And then this notion mm-hmm. of zero sum um, was pretty tough for me in my personality. I was really more, um, I gravitate toward kind of working with people to create something. And I always felt like if you're a lawyer, you're either fighting tooth and nail to figure out who wins and who loses, or even in a transactional setting, um, there's a, there's a lot of posturing that happens and, um, that just, I don't think ever sat well with me. And so, yeah, I went through law school. I got my JD. I sat for the, for the bar exam, um, that summer. And the first job I had after law school wasn't as a lawyer. <laughs> That's for damn sure. <laughs> so I, as I was in law school, there was also this this 20, I think he was 21 years old at the time. And he was in the journalism school at uh, CU Boulder. And, um, Uh his name is Josh, Josh Spear. So shout out to you, Josh. Uh, I hope you listen to this. I saw, I think he gave you a recommendation on LinkedIn. Oh yeah. I think he said, that must've been in the early (laughs) LinkedIn days. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I've got some, uh, I did a lot of research on you. I read one of your earliest blog Uh, articles. I read some of your Huffington Post contributions. Yeah. yeah. You probably know me pretty well just because I I tend to sort of bear my personality and my written communication. But um, yeah, yeah. So Josh was, uh, yeah, this young whippersnapper um, who was super into rock climbing and um, more so into culture and he's sitting in these journalism school classes and the internet is changing so rapidly at this at this moment right this is 2005 Mm -hmm. 2006 um everything is changing social networks are starting to 
to happen. I mean, that was back in the days of like, um, that was back in the days of like Friendster and MySpace. Oh yeah, and blogs. You know, I actually know the CEO of Friendster. Oh, He's a friend. <laughs> yeah, I bet you. His did. name was uh, Scott Scott Sassa. He was the uh, so he's the chairman of a company called Milk Makeup yeah. now. But he was uh, he was brought in to be like the adult supervision, yeah. and then just had no idea what he was doing, self admittedly, yeah. and uh, <laughs> and uh, obviously flamed out. That's funny. yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep it's, going. No, Sorry. it's super interesting to talk about the genesis of of social networks, right? Um, maybe mm-hmm. another podcast episode. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like this guy was basically calling bullshit on the curriculum they were teaching in journalism school because they weren't teaching anything. Hmm about the digital space. It was all this archaic stuff about, yeah, print media and, yeah, TV and, you know, things that we now just wouldn't even consider because everything is about the internet. And so he actually started blogging from his classes. He developed um, a blog that became really widely read um, amongst sort of creatives and tastemakers and people at brands. And he really just did it by writing about things that he saw on the internet or he saw while traveling. Um, and he actually garnered enough readership to have advertisers on the site. Um, and so he had some, some money rolling in and, um, my brother actually started, my brother at the time was working for an ad agency in Austin, Texas, and had started reading Josh's blog. It was like, bro, like this guy lives in Boulder. Like you should have a drink with him and, and see what's up. Like, you know, my brother knew I was kind of struggling with, with what I was going to do, what to do, yeah, what direction, with my, yeah. my legal career. And so I met Josh and Josh was like, yeah, dude, this is great timing. Like I need your help. Like you seem like this will be a good fit. So like Josh and I basically started working together and we got this office space in downtown Boulder. And it was like, um, it was like, a you know, it, like your tribe office probably looks like now there are like Nerf dart guns and fucking beanbag chairs and like all this shit. <laughs> and I'm thinking about like, yeah, this is beer, beer, There's, beer it's way yeah, better yeah. than being a lawyer. And um, yeah, <laughs> that was an easy. Totally. <laughs> so like, I helped Josh uh, publish his blog and, um, you know, manage a bunch of contributors that he had um, started partnering with around the world. And I wrote a lot of um, content myself during that time. Um, but we also launched what I called at the time, like an artist management collective. Our idea was to bring artists, designers, photographers and other creatives under one sort of um, roof and do collaborative projects together, help manage them, um, sort of like an agency, a talent talent management agency, um, do like limited edition uh, product series with cool brands and like pitch brands on these cool like, you know, artist series things. And we did some cool stuff there. Um, but the other thing we were really doing is the brand space really tar- started taking notice of what was happening mm-hmm. um, in the blogosphere, right? And so um, we ended up kind of coming in and consulting at the C level um, with big brands. And they wanted to know from us, these young kids who were more digitally minded, um, about, you know, how, how do you guys develop this authentic? Um, connection with your audience and you know what's the magic sauce and how can we do that because while they didn't know how to do that they knew that they needed to do that because they saw the writing on the wall that the 
the uh-huh. media landscape was changing overnight. Um, and so that part of what we were doing actually led Josh to jump ship to New York. Um, within a year of us working together, like everything happened really quickly. Josh ended up partnering with um, a couple guys and they launched this digital agency in New York that became wildly successful. Um, and I stayed back. It wasn't, wasn't in the stars for me to move to New York City at that time. And so I stayed yep. back and over the next few years, I, I, you know, dabbled in a few different uh, roles as a lawyer. I had like a slashy role where I was the general counsel and marketing manager at a software company. Um, yep. I did some... I looked at your background. You were doing like three things yeah. at once. You'd be like editor to magazine, attorney, yeah, and like and uh, yeah, and what was the other one? It was like and like consulting these yeah, brands. consulting these brands. Uh, but I always kept one foot in the brand space. I think that's the important mm-hmm. thing for the listeners to to realize is like I never fully committed to being a lawyer. I at one point had a pretty successful practice where I was working with early stage tech companies and other entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And I, I really enjoyed seeing these, um, people like, like you, honestly, and your founders, um, really have passionate drive for what they were building and really spinning these concepts and companies up quickly to address problems and, um, really help improve people's lives. Um, but what I felt like is that was great for them, but there was something that wasn't being addressed for, for myself. Um, and I didn't feel super passionate about the, the work I was doing, although I, I did enjoy seeing my clients um, find, find their own success. So um, that's ultimately what led me to, yeah, thanks to the... Then you just dove head first into brands, just like small brands, big brands, that's like, it. <laughs> yeah. but all, all like outdoor related yep. for sure. A lot of skiing, skiing heavy in there. Yeah. I mean, if you can imagine um, like a yeah. lawyer coming off the street and walking into an interview for like a marketing manager role at a, a ski brand, like, um, it's no, it's no secret why I, I took the path I did to work with the brands I did is I never left that community and I was still part of the core. Mm-hmm. And so when I went in, I didn't have just a resume that had a bunch of legal roles on it. I had a creative portfolio that had like my social media. I edited a bunch of like film back then and edits. Um, Mm. And we were doing like web edits about like our skiing and mountain biking and just things to show the brands that I understood how to generate content. And yeah, really sort of humanize brands through, through my approach to content and communicate those brands in a way that resonated that message. Again, similar to what we were doing with blogging. Um, yeah. How do you, how do you really, um, resonate a brand message? It's, it's by, um, being human and being accessible and being, um, a listener and, and getting back Mm -hmm. to your audience when they have questions or when they have concerns. And so that two way dialogue that we all, now take as fundamental, um, in the marketing space. Um, you know, it wasn't always the case, but yeah. You know, I still don't think, I mean, even today there's a lot of brands that still don't get that, right? Like when we were, um, one of the the things that always stuck out to me. So, um, and I might've talked about this in previous episodes. So apologies for those people that have heard it already, but, um, you know, Nick's, so one of our earliest success stories was we used our data to identify this company, Nick's Cosmetics. 
um, who went on to get acquired for $500 million by L'Oreal. And they were just doing really well in this creator, influencer, publisher space. Just tons of people talking about them, way more than should be given their size. And um, so L'Oreal acquires them. And then post-acquisition, they think they're acquiring this like super like digitally savvy brand. They expect like scaled ads and all these kinds of things. And um, they said when they acquired them, what they realized was they were the most human brand they had, you know, worked with. And the reason for that is they realize that, you know, what technology actually allows you to do and what social media allows you to do is to connect directly with your customers in a meaningful way, no matter where they are on the planet. Um, so you can have this direct connection with your customers that you never used to be able to have. Um, and, and you can do it just at scale, right? You can have thousands or tens of thousands of conversations um, that just would have been very difficult previously or, or extremely costly. And so, yeah, it's, you know, that's, even though that is, I think, what the best brands are doing, I still don't think everybody's on that train yet or hasn't figured and it out. And to your point, even the brands that seem to get it in principle probably don't resource that effort nearly enough, right? Exactly. I mean, like for for context, a brand. Now, this is obviously a very big brand, right? But Gucci yeah. will get around three hundred thousand pieces of content a year just from the influencers we track, just in the U.S. So that means that if you have a team, they have to respond to a thousand posts just from influencers, let alone consumers, actively talking about your company. Like, how many people do you need to do that? Right? That's not like a one or two person job. Um, that's like a 25 to 50 person job. Like it's a lot. And so, you know, we're seeing it both on the approach side and on the resourcing side, you're seeing these brands succeed that get that. Um, yeah, no, I think that's been one of the biggest frustrations or fights that I've had in my career, especially working with small brands is like just trying to convey to the powers that be, um, the leadership that, you need to really take that seriously because that's your best path to growth. And it's your best path to growing in the right way with the right people. Um, so don't take that for granted. Um, building the right audience on social is, yeah, of fundamental importance for, for all brands and especially the brands in the space I work in, which, you know, in the outdoor industry, um, you know, we're talking about pretty small community, a pretty core culture at the heart of it all. And if you show up in a way that's tone deaf or in a way that doesn't resonate with that core culture, you're going to automatically be discounted and um, people are going to move on to the next brand. And so um, it's, it's yeah. super important. Yeah. I mean, those communities are super tightly knit in the outdoor space. I think we see the same patterns there that we see in fashion and beauty and these other categories, which is, you know, just a lot of passion, very community driven. They expect to have like basically a personal relationship with the brand. Um, and so, you know, the brands that are doing that are, are winning. Yeah. Um, when you're looking at, so, you know, you mentioned small brands. Um, now that you've worked at a brand like the North Face, as well as, you know, uh, DPS is big and Spider's big, as well as these smaller guys. What do you notice in terms of the challenges that those two, or, you know, like, what are the challenges of a small company versus a big? And, you know, how do you navigate both of those from a marketing perspective? Yeah, I mean, they each have their own set of uh, challenges. It's like different sides of the same coin, right? Like at small brands, um, there's generally like a really keen sense of that culture. In many, in many instances, you're talking about like, 
In the case of DPS, I mean, this is a tiny little boutique ski brand in Salt Lake City. Um, and it's been around for 15 years, but I mean, kind of a garage brand that became something a little bit bigger. So you're talking about mm-hmm. like a dozen employees. And when I was there, we, we were starting to scale a little bit beyond that. But your sense of self and sense of the culture that helped build that brand to where it was um, at, at present day um, was really strong. And we would have these uh, events where uh, we call them the OGs. And th- this was part of our, our community. Like you could call them like our best influencers. These are the people who yep. have been in the brand fold since the very beginning. And we would always make a point of um, making sure that every year we had a ski day with the OGs and everyone would fly out to Salt Lake City. We would meet up at Alta. We'd ski super hard. We'd drink beers. We'd barbecue um, and really just treat it like a family. And so that definitely wasn't the issue there. The issue there is more um, financial resources, honestly, is like how you, how do you compete in a pay-to-play environment before you really had to start paying for social media? It was relatively straightforward. You work with um, content creators that are your friends. You put out great content and you let the, the organic, um, you know, momentum of that content do, do its thing. But, um, you know, content and getting that content out, distributing that content has gotten more expensive. So how do you operate mm-hmm. in this pay-to-play environment? Whereas at the North Face, it's, it's kind of the opposite problem. You're all of a sudden dealing with an org that's, you know, many hundreds of people, um, big and a marketing team that's, you know, a hundred people, a global marketing team, a hundred people, and everyone sort of siloed off into their functions. So, you know, at the North Face, we have, um, the social team rolls up to our digital marketing team, our PR team is part of the comms team. And then I'm over here in, in sports marketing. And so I handle all of our, all of our athletes and those sorts of partnerships. And so you end up with, um, sort of running the risk of either losing or diluting the, the really strong culture. And so it really requires stewardship um, on a consistent basis to make sure that that culture is intact. And one of the things I've been really heartened by at the North Face is that the leadership seems to really get that and seems mm-hmm. to understand that culture isn't just about what you put out in your brand, brand comm channels. It's about what you live within the brand. Um, and I have to say for, well, it, it starts at the top, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I, uh, can't remember who it was, but you know, basically saying like, you can tell a lot about the leadership of a company based upon like how they communicate, how they interact with people, like what kind of, you know, what things they support, what things do they do that aren't necessarily, you know, just about doing sa- generating sales. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, people go ahead and detect that authenticity, whether you care or you don't care. Um, is the leadership there pretty, have they been around a long time or are they fairly new? Yeah. I mean, it, it's been really illustrative to that is the, um, current CEO of Vandy Faircourt, our parent company, Steve Rendell used to be the president yep. of the North face. And so ah, like, there, there is a lot of, of that, um, like, yeah sort of heritage or um, staying power. But we also have a lot of new team members too because uh, a lot of the Bay Area-based audience might know this. Um, The North Face, since 1966, was based in the Bay Area. And last year, 
move to Denver. So, I oh, mean, wow. talk about a that's a big move, huge move. Um, the team has gone through a lot in the last year. I mean, start adding up the ways in which people's lives have changed in the last year. Um, especially North Face employees, a lot of these folks moved their entire families um, to Colorado for their role. Um, and so it's been really challenging. There was, there was a fair amount of turnover. I think when I, when I think about some of the, the challenges of that are, are you know, easy to understand, of course, but there are benefits yeah. too because the people who stayed on board, I mean, were clearly invested in this brand. Yep. And then you also have the opportunity to bring new blood in, people who are perhaps from different geographies, people who are also really stoked and we have this opportunity to to re, redefine um, and reclarify our culture as a brand, and to me that's super exciting. I mean, that's a powerful moment in time to be involved with a brand like the North Face. So, yeah, yeah. Zappos did the same yeah. thing. So Zappos did. It was earlier on, right? Obviously not not as old as the North Face, but they made a shift to Las Vegas. So um, Tony, the CEO, talked about it in his book. But it was like, like, hey, we're moving to Vegas. And we're like, what? Like, what do you mean we're moving to Vegas? And I can't remember the exact rationale. I think it had to do with like aligning their, they wanted to be like in the same location as their shipping facilities, basically, if I remember correctly. But either way, he's like, yeah, you know, we had 50% of the people left or 40% of the people left, which is understandable. And we don't begrudge them that. Like, that's yeah. totally their decision. But then the people that stuck around were like really committed, right? And that's, and, um, and in some ways you find that Sometimes with a smaller team, you can actually get more done. Uh, you're a little bit faster, a little more nimble. Um, so yeah, yeah that's, that's really interesting to be kind of at the center of yeah. that while it's happening. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I mean, it's definitely come with its set of challenges, but um, I like to try to focus on the positives. And um, I, I'm really yeah, quite actually blown away with the, the caliber of people that I get to work with every day. So, so tell me more about kind of your role within the North yeah. Face, right? So you are working with athletes directly, some of the best athletes in the yeah. world. Um, what does the day-to-day -day look like there? And I think particularly, you know, I'd be really interested to know the difference in the day-to-day. -day. Like what did it mm -hmm. look like kind of pre-COVID? Yeah. What does it look like after now that you can't do? Like yeah. I would imagine a really big part of your job is like going out and skiing yeah. with them. Like now you can't yeah. do that, right? Although, you know, of course we're middle of summer, but – uh, you get the idea. Yeah. I, I'd love to know a little bit more about your day-to-day. -day. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. So the North Face athlete team is sort of the gold standard. Um, and yep. I mean, the best yeah, in the world. I yeah. mean, we have um, the world's best alpinists and climbers of all discipline and skiers and snowboarders and trail runners. And yeah, people who have really pushed not only their sports, honestly, but the the bounds of, of human achievement, right? And I mean, the probably the best and most well-known example would be Alex Honnold um, and mm -hmm. um, his free soloing El Cap in Yosemite. I mean, something that yep. is just borderline inhuman. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it's like, it does, I think there's a certain amount of, you have to be able to suspend your fear of death. Like, I just, I don't have that. Like, I'm very afraid of well, that. Well, in, in so Free Solo, I, I in Free Solo, yeah. right, Oscar-winning film, they they take a look at Alex's brain, and um, I forget if it's, it's his amygdala, 
but it's basically it doesn't respond to correct. fear. It's just like it's turned blank. off. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, you kind of need you need to be able to control um, the mental part as well as the physical part. But yeah, I mean, these are all athletes who are I've I've held them in high regard for for years and years. Um, but yeah, so they're used to going on expeditions and going and filming with um, the best production companies in the world and putting out awesome content. And um, that's sort of business as usual, right? And so, you know, we usually have a really kind of cool uh, collaborative expedition proposal process at the brand where um, it's, it's, it's kind of like a peer reviewed um, process where we take proposals in from the athlete team and the athlete community mm-hmm. itself votes on those expedition concepts. And then we have sort of a vetting process internally to sort of, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't address like our brand concept map and like our go-to-market strategy and, and try to line up um, athlete efforts to those commercial efforts. And so a lot of things that happen, but ultimately you end up, you know, sending athletes to the, the far reaches of the earth to try things that have never been tried before. And many times they're successful and sometimes it turns into tragedy. Like we lost three athletes last year in an avalanche in British Columbia. And um, that part of, of what I do um, weighs, weighs on me always. And I've lost a lot of friends in the mountains over the years and it never gets easier. But um, uh, I think the potential for the upside of what our athletes do um, outweighs that difficult part. And that's what keeps a lot of us doing what we do. Um, There's something just really raw and inspiring about watching uh, accounts of of these athletes achieve what they're able to achieve because they really push themselves in so many ways. And um, I think, you know, their stories serve as um, inspiration to tons of people, people who may themselves be super into mountain sports and then people who have never done them in their lives, but just, you know, are able to grasp the, um, you know, the, the sheer nature of what they're doing. So, um, yeah, I mean, so that's, that's what we do in a normal year. And then COVID happens and you mm-hmm. go on this, yeah, there's a moratorium on travel and we had all these expeditions queued up for this year and we had to press pause on everything. And, um, the athlete team, I mean, of course is struggling with this, but they have shown up in such a huge way, um, in a positive way. And, um, I really do feel like this, this group of individuals, um, their talents and their humanity and their spirit transcends their sport and their their mountain-based craft, right? They have shown up for their communities. They've helped, um, they've used their platforms to get out information. Um, they've worked at a local level, regional level, national level, international level. And it's just been really great to see. We've been having weekly athlete town hall meetings um, that I've organized in partnership with our team captain, Hillary Nelson, and Conrad Anker, um, who is our team captain for many, many years and has been involved with the brand since the 80s. Um, and we have a guru as well. 
His name is Tim Tate, and um, he's become a good friend. I, I sort of, uh, in jest, call him our guru, but um, he's someone who, yeah. he's from Bozeman, Montana, and um, Conrad has known him for many years, and he's a, a licensed psychotherapist, and so he has worked with a number of TNF athletes over the years, um, dealing like dealing with everything from sports psychology to um, processing through um, trauma and um, survivor's guilt if, if God forbid, there yeah. is um, a death amongst our team. And um, he's become a trusted advisor as well. So we've been having these weekly town hall meetings. And um, it's been a great opportunity to bring everyone together because traditionally at the North Face, we would do like an annual uh, athlete summit where everyone would fly to like, usually it's like a beach. Like the last one was in Puerto Rico the last international one and everyone comes in and um, there's kind of some, there's some workshops in a professional sense, but largely it's an opportunity to get everyone together and really bond as a team mm-hmm. and talk about future collaborations and future projects in the mountains. Um, and without that, um, what we found is a weekly opportunity to, to connect and we've invited guest speakers in, um, you know, we've, we've had, a ton of different people join us, but lately we've had people come in to speak to DEI issues and uh, help give the athlete team tools to be able to address this systemic racism we're all trying to fight right now and help certain athletes come to grips with their white privilege and um, really start to work through some of these nuances that many of us are struggling with right now. But this opportunity to learn I feel like is even more powerful in a setting like that, where you can in real time um, sort of have people who are of the same mindset collaborate and talk through the difficult things, but come out of that session feeling like they they got somewhere in that conversation and that they can now feel like they have the permission or they have the knowledge to be able to use their platforms to help advance some of these important um, causes around racial justice, right? So... It's been really cool, really powerful. Um, to see all the change happen in such a short period of time. For totally. Sure. I think the uh, that process of deciding on the expeditions, go back a little bit, sounds really interesting mm-hmm. in terms of combining. Obviously, you guys have your own goals, mm-hmm. right? Like you said, your own product roadmap. Mm-hmm. and um, But then the idea of having like all of the athletes vote mm-hmm. on it. And, you know, just be like, that would be really cool. Is it, am I understanding yeah. that correctly? Like, that would be really cool if you did yeah. that. Like, that's the process. Well, they, not, not necessarily that. It's more like each athlete or they can team up. And there's really no limit to uh, the number of I gotcha. proposals. They said, these are the things that I want to do. Yeah, do. and then it becomes yeah. like crowd, um, basically, uh, not crowdsource, but um, people upvote. So you, we have yeah. actually a website that we designed specifically for this. Where you can that's yeah. the, what I was talking yeah. about. Yeah, keep where going. you upload your your sort of video where you give your elevator pitch, like your sixty second pitch, and then you you kind of write a synopsis of your project, and then um, the athlete team and our internal team goes through it, and we you know of course digest the the video pitches and read some of the other stuff and um, start to form some opinions, and then we rate it. There's like a rating system for different criteria. And then it's yeah. kind of like, yeah, it's pretty sophisticated. Um, and that's, it's been a good tool and it like kind of, ins- well, really does incentivize the athletes to bring their A game um, and really uh, some great ideas have come out of, of that process. And we also 
we kind of lay out ahead of that process for the athletes, like, let's remind you this group of our brand values. And here are some of the big, the big rock issues that we as a brand are dealing with um, outside of our commercial goals. Like here are some of the causes we're, we're really trying to be supportive of right now. And so you end up um, getting great proposals that ladder up to some of those, um, those causes as well. Um, so it's, it's for great. sure. And then, did you like, so how do you guys, I mean, obviously, so you've got these expeditions or relationships, obviously all of this is, you know, resulting in great social media content material that you guys can repurpose. Are you guys, do you guys try to, I'd have to imagine being a, an organization this big, you have like KPIs connected with this. Yeah. What are those? Like how, or do you have them if you do like, what are they? What are some of the ways that you guys measure success? Yeah, I mean, like for our athletes themselves, we we do of course need a way to ascertain the value of each specific athlete. But, um, Mm -hmm. I mean, the reality is, is we judge each athlete based on an array of factors, a lot of intangible factors. So we'll of course look at their social stats. We'll look at how they engage on social. We look at sort of how they show up for the brand and things that like we can really sort of measure but just mm-hmm. as much, we have to look sort of behind the curtain and understand how they're operating within their sportive communities, within their close communities where they live. Um, you know, we still have a, a lot. We have a lot of dealers um, that we want to support. And so are these athletes showing up to dealers in their region and, um, you know, doing slideshows and really being that sort of face and voice for the brand at a local level. Um, and so there's a ton of things that we would take into account when, um, yeah, sort of like measuring a ROI of an athlete or measuring the quality of the relationship with an athlete. And a lot of them are, I mean, it's a super difficult problem, right? Like how do you, but you know, and at the same time you do have to make real decisions, right? Like you have a finite budget, you have to decide who you're going to work with and what that looks like. And so, yeah, I can imagine it being like complex problem. Like how do you make a decision? And a lot of it's like this, this is probably pretty nuanced for a lot of, of the audience, but like even within our sports, there's so many different ways to rock climb, for example, and so many different styles. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times we find ourselves thinking about, okay, here's how we at the brand want to show up in this sport. And who are the athletes who can help us show up in the way we want to. Right. And, um, in, especially in recent years, but this has been underway for a while. Um, racial and gender diversity on our team are of paramount importance because, you know, we ultimately want our athlete team to reflect, um, you know, humanity and this yep. is a this is a well and the problem is you're de- you're generally dealing with fairly privileged sports right That's like the tough part. people that can afford to like go and rock climb all day yep aren't worried about you know feeding themselves yep. all the time yep. right yep. so it's tough to you know kind of strike that particularly tough yep. i would imagine for you guys to try and kind of represent people you yeah know, the right so way. we re- we i agree with that in principle um that's sort of status quo. We also reject that from a future forward perspective because we really feel like we have the um, platform and ability to, in a grassroots way, change these sports, change the fabric of these sports so that there is more diverse participation 
and we have an active role to play there. And so, you know, a lot of our thinking goes into, um, you know, how we're going to increase participation in, in these mountain sports mm-hmm. across culture, mm-hmm. across gender. Um, so a lot of the campaigns you'll see from the North Face are specifically geared to do that because we want to see this culture change and we want this culture to be more diverse in the future. So, Yeah, I mean, you guys have such a big platform and the resources to do it. That's like a really cool like mission, yeah. right? Like it's a really cool, like how do we, you know, play a role in this? Yeah. And you're, again, you're big enough that you can actually make like a really significant impact. Yeah. And, which yeah. is exciting. That, that honestly goes to like, if we're talking about my career and how I navigated, you know, first being a lawyer and then moving to the brand space, one of the, the main drivers for me was when I was a lawyer, I really wanted to, you know, I was struggling to figure out how I could use my profession to do the most good. And Mm -hmm. as I started to get to know the brand space, I started to figure out if you play your cards right, you have the right leadership and you use your brand platform in the right way, you can use brands as a vehicle for good as well. And so that was one of the main drivers for me. Um, as I transitioned over to the brand space and, you know, some would argue like, Oh, you guys are just selling, um, you're feeding this commercial frenzy and you're just selling product and this and that. And I've honestly never thought of the brands I've worked for in that light. I've always thought of the brands I work for, um, in a more human way. And I feel like there's a tremendous opportunity to use a brand platform to do good. And I think, um, yeah, we're seeing a moment in time right now when, a lot of brands are trying to figure out what that looks like for them. Um, with, totally. yeah, so. Well, I mean, I, you see it tangibly, yeah. right? Like I've read, let my people go surfing. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think there's, and like that, those ideals you espouse as a brand have, have impacts on other people, yeah. right? Other people observe like, Oh wow, you can win while doing good. You can win while doing it this way. Right. Yeah. Like, so I think that it actually gives you a really big platform to, um, to affect yeah. change. Um, and the reality is that like, you know, creating really great stuff that people like to wear and use and buy and enables their life is like, is a, I think it's a noble mission. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't get caught up in the idea of commercialization. Obviously I'm inherently fi- fairly biased, but you know, yeah. that, that's my view on it. At yeah. Least. I mean, I feel pretty comfortable that we, in our product development efforts, we, we want to create items that help people with their own dreams as far as exploration is concerned and help them go achieve something they haven't before. So I feel pretty good about that part. And I I also feel good about using our brand platform to, to be more activist, honestly. And I think we're, we're in a moment right now when um, the community is speaking pretty loudly that it's not enough for brands to sort of sign on to a cause and put that out there on social, there needs to be meaningful action behind that. And so we are really taking that seriously at, at the North Face right now. And, um, you know, something like that is going to happen overnight, but we already have a, a over a decade long track record of um, supporting um, diversity in the outdoors through our Explore Fund. And so what we're envisioning right now is really a, a continuation of an effort that's already been underway, but we know that we need to show up um, right now and we need to do it in a way that's not only, you know, 
helping these organizations right now in this moment financially, but also sets those organizations up for success in the future. And these partnerships need to be long-term. They can't just be for this news cycle and then we move on. That that cannot happen right now. This this moment in time is too important. So Totally. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. <laughs> so I've got a few more fun yeah. questions uh, as we fast. Um, for those listening, Jamie doesn't know what these are, so we'll see how he does. Um, so first up, um, this is, uh, I'm hoping I'm going to get this out of you. So I read online on LinkedIn, and Britt also let me know, I should ask you about what your favorite cocktail is. And in my research, I noticed that somebody talked about you make a mean Negroni. Yeah. So what is the, uh, what's the recipe for all those out there that want to make a killer Negroni? What, how do you yeah. make it? Negroni is as easy as it gets. It's equal parts gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth. Um, and is it your favorite cocktail? It's one of my favorite. Do you favorites. do anything special? So when I worked for, um, I worked for some brands that are based in um, the Dolomites, so in northern Italy. And so anything like an Aperol Spritz or an Americano or a Negroni, I mean, those are all speaking my language. But um, honestly, like what I drink at home is largely really good IPA. Ah, have you gotten into the hazy stuff yeah. or what, what's your I mean, preference? Yeah. My brother and I kind of nerd out. Like when I come to San Francisco to visit, like I'll go to the liquor store and pick up a bunch of stuff I think is great. And then he'll take his turn and we kind of nerd out. And we also, um, our mom taught us to cook. And so we both really enjoy cooking as well. So, um, I always joke with people, like if my career path hadn't gone where it did, I might actually have been a chef. Um, I really do enjoy cooking and, um, I think my wife and my bro and Brit would probably say I'm a pretty good cook. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Um, yeah, I've, uh, I've got a buddy that I, uh, nerd out with on beer as well. I've gotten really into it. It becomes just like a hobby, right? Like, Oh, you know, it's like, I know what the 10 best beers are on untapped. And I've like, I've had four of them. How do I get to the next? No, totally. The challenge for me is I came from Denver, which is like a beer Mecca, you know? Yep. Um, and actually during the last global recession, I worked for a stint as a, a mixologist or a bartender, whatever you want to call it. Um, for, I actually sort of apprentice under this guy, Kevin Burke, shout out to Kevin, um, who had spent years in New York in the cocktail scene and um, kind of opened a bar, a bar restaurant with one of my friends. And I kind of uh, went under his wing and did a stage with him for a few months and learned how to mix a lot of great cocktails. So my cocktail mixing um, talents, I can attribute to to my buddy, Kevin Burke. Um, but then I moved to Utah. So like the, the beer scene here, um, there is a beer scene here, but it's nowhere near what it's like in Colorado. And I still, I have to go buy my beer um, at a state run liquor store. And the beer is merchandised on the floor in cardboard boxes. The beer is at room temperature. <laughs> I mean, talk about sacrilegious. Yeah, yeah. And it's probably really old. <laughs> totally, totally. So like we, yeah. there's actually Evanston, Wyoming is just on I-80 about 45 minutes from here. And the other day, one of my neighbors, buddy of mine was making a trip to Evanston to pick up some, he's like, I'm going on a beer and liquor run. What do you want? So I put in my order and he brought me back cold beer and a, a big handle of Hendrix. So there you yeah. go. 
Yeah, they've got a Utah has it's High West that's in yeah, Park City, which is right? great. That's actually my preferred uh, whiskey for for old fashioned. It's great. I like it's, it. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not gonna say there's no scene here, but just because of how it's the not, the laws yeah. work and stuff, and I mean, you're gonna spend thirty percent more on the same six pack in Utah because yep. the the government's getting a bunch of your money. The taxes are super high. For sure. Yeah. So what? Uh, so how many days a year do you ski, and what are your top three mountains? I've never counted my ski days. I mean, wow, that's surprising yeah. to me. I don't know the names. I feel like of that's like either. a brag stat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I got to college and stuff, that was the first time people really started counting. They're like, oh, how many days you get this year, bro? And I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> like I grew up skiing six days a week. I started skiing at two years old. Like, you know, yeah, that's just yeah. my reality. My, that's part of my life. And like, I skied yesterday on June 8th and I skied some of the best conditions of the year. Like, so over the years, this is getting really nuanced um, for probably most of the audience again. But, um, you know, I, of course, spent a lot of time on ski resorts as a kid. And, uh, but over the last decade, I've had various roles with backcountry ski brands. And so I've, meanwhile, I was living in Colorado on the front range where similar to San Francisco, the access to the mountains is really challenging on the weekend because everyone and their mom wants to go up to Tahoe or everyone and their mom wants to go up to Summit mm-hmm. County in Colorado. And so we just got creative over the years and I had access to, you know, the best backcountry ski gear out there. So my, my wife and I would just, we go on dawn patrol. So we'd leave really, really early and we'd be done and off the mountain, um, by noon, whereas everyone else was still stuck in traffic and we would have had the best conditions you can get because we were willing to walk uphill for our turns. And, um, that's what really excites me about skiing these days is earning my turns. I really feel like Um, your opportunity to be in nature and have everything be quiet and enjoy the solitude of things um, is much more possible when you're you're doing human powered um, mountain sports and so backcountry skiing or mountain biking things that actually make you work a little bit um, actually have a massive payoff in terms of the quality of what you experience um, and just the kind of meditative uh, part of that as well so Totally. It's your favorite mountains, awesome, man. Um, yeah, Crested Butte for sure. That's my home mountain. Yep. Um, I like I like the Aspen Mountains a lot. I've had fun fun there. Um, Aspen Highlands is a great mountain. Highland Bowl is just an awesome sort of inbound ski experience because you know it takes you way into the Alpine and you look out across the Maroon Bells and. If you were to look through some of those mountains, you'd actually see Crested Butte because Aspen and Crested Butte are actually about 20 miles apart from each other um, as the crow flies. Um, So I really, I do feel at home in in the Aspen zone. Um, I remember having some really great days at Jackson Hole in my my, uh, college days, but I haven't been back to the Tetons in a while. Um, But yeah, the... I'm hesitating to say uh, the Wasatch where I live now, because um, in some ways I don't want many people to move to move here. <laughs> but um, don't but worry. I'll sh- our audience isn't that big; they won't affect. Yeah, in the <laughs> in the interest of the abundance mentality, um, yeah, this place is uh, an awesome place to be a skier because um, it's a really um, 
small mountain range. It's sort of a, a tight mountain range, but there's so much opportunity to ski within that mountain range, especially backcountry ski. So um, I really enjoy um, backcountry skiing here in the Wasatch. There yeah. you go. Well, I think with that, we will let you go. But thanks so much, Jamie, for taking the time out today. We really appreciate it. Uh, I know everybody learned a lot today. I learned a lot. And uh, yeah, I hope to to see you uh, in San Francisco soon. Yeah. Or maybe I'll have to make a trip out there and we'll do some beer tasting. Absolutely, Connor. It was a pleasure to chat with you. I really actually, yeah, enjoyed this a lot. So thanks for having me. And I'm really stoked to meet you in person someday soon, whether that's in San Francisco or here in Utah. Hit subscribe now. Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Tribe Dynamics unlocks your social media influencer community. Our platform not only tracks and measures your best influencer relationships, but discovers new influencers to grow your business through earned media. Get started with a demo today at tribedynamics.com. Tribedynamics.com.